Hello, I am Sam Amon, and this is the 25th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing the Russian Revolution and Central Asia. Before I begin our episode, I have a huge announcement. I've launched a Patreon for the podcast. I'm very excited. We have some awesome benefits, such as early access to content, a book club, a shout out at the end of our episodes, and more. And I think our tiers are pretty cleverly named, so you can sign up as an unpaid intern, or a research assistant, or even a curator, because who doesn't want to be a curator? If you sign up now, you'll gain access to an exclusive episode about, about Michael Collins and the Irish War of Independence. I have a lot of exciting goals for this podcast, including new episode formats and opportunities for guest researchers and maybe even guest hosts, but I can't do any of it without you. So please uh, contribute, follow, spread the word. Every little bit helps. And now it's time for the Making History segment. Only three items today. First, be sure you are following Chicago Alliance Against Racial and Political Repression on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. They have week-long events with, which involve phone banking, emailing campaigns, and canvassing certain wards to get the word out about the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance. This ordinance was put together by CPAC and GAPA coalitions, and it will create the most democratic police accountability system in the country but it's up to us to convince our alders to vote in favor and reject whatever the mayor has planned. Second, hate crimes are on the rise, especially against Asian communities. A couple of ways you can help is to, one, if you're in Chicago, call Mayor Lightfoot and tell her cops don't make communities safer, so stop, you know, stop increasing cop presence in Asian communities in Chicago. Second, donate to organizations in your community that help support Asian Americans and help fight against racial discrimination. I'll provide a link to a list of countrywide organizations that you can donate to to help pay for victims' medical bills and help organize against racial hatred. Some of these organizations include Asian Pacific Fund COVID-19 Recovery Fund, Welcome to Chinatown, Asian Mental Health Collective, 18 Million Rising, Heart of Dinner, Asian Pacific Environmental Network, and East Asian Community Alliance. Finally, there has been an insane amount of anti-trans bills in the U.S. Most of them are focused on attacking and punishing children for daring to know who they are. As someone who is non-binary, my teenage years would have been happier if I had known I could transition. That who I was and how I presented could be different, and I had a freedom to decide how to align those two differences in my life. These bills attack people, specifically children, for being who they are. Just because you prevent a child from transitioning in a safe environment doesn't mean they'll no longer be trans. Just like making abortions illegal doesn't stop abortions. It just makes it more dangerous. Trans kids will still exist in states such as Alabama, but they will be punished for existing. In North Carolina, they went really crazy and decided that they were going to force school staffers to report kids for any kind of quote-unquote gender infraction to their parents. They've literally created the gender police, and they're turning them loose on your children. 
Do you want to live in a state that follows North Carolina's example and have your kids hounded and attacked by school staff? If not, please donate to your local LGBTQ organizations. Some of the organizations that I know of and can vouch for are Brave Space Alliance in Chicago, Tate Birmingham in Alabama, Trans Athlete, which is a site dedicated to helping people understand how sports and transgender intersect, the Knights and Orchid Society, which supports Black, transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people in the South, Black Trans Travel Fund, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, Delitz, Inc., G-L-I-T-S, Trans Justice Funding Project, Intransitive in Arkansas, Black Trans Futures, Trans Women of Color Collective, Homeless Black Trans Women Fund in Georgia, and the Okra Project. I will include links for all these organizations in the description, and I'll create a page on our website that contains links to all these organizations as well. And finally, call your representatives. I don't care if your state doesn't have an anti-trans bill yet. At this rate, it's going to at some point. Call them and tell them that you support trans people and to vote no on any and all anti-trans bills. And now, on to the Russian Revolution in Central Asia. When we last discussed Central Asia, the region was in the midst of the 1916 revolt, which is now seen as the harbinger of the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil Wars. Today, we'll discuss how the Russian Revolution affected Central Asia. 1917 is an odd year for Russia because it's a period where militarily things were beginning to look up, but socially and politically things were at their lowest. Even though Russia had seen its greatest military victory in 1916, the Brusilov Offensive, which cost them an estimated 3 million killed, wounded, or taken prisoner, and Russia was correcting its production issues, it was still facing a massive supply crisis because of an overstrained and broken transport system. This meant shortages of food, fuel, and basic household goods, rapid inflation, and corruption within the government and its military suppliers. Most fatal of all was the complete lack of trust everyone had in the Russian government. The people believed that governmental officials were either unacceptably incompetent or German spies and traitors. Even the staunchly monarchist general Alexei Brusilov admitted that, quote, Russia could not win with its present system of government. Everyone agreed that Russia was on the brink of a great catastrophe, but no one could have predicted it would have been at the hands of women tired of queuing for bread. Russia had flour, despite what the rumors claimed, but the transport system had broken down, meaning the flour couldn't get to the cities where it was desperately needed. In Petrograd, women would wait in line all night only to be told the next morning that there was no bread. On February 19th, the Petrograd authorities said that rationing would begin on March 1st, raising the specter of mass starvation. On February 23rd, the first warm day after weeks of the coldest winter Russia had experienced for several years, women came out in mass to celebrate International Women's Day and to protest for equal rights and bread. By mid-afternoon, other workers joined them. The police tried to disperse them with the Cossack support, but Cossacks were non-committal at best. Their timidity encouraged the workers to return on February 24th, this time drawing in students, bank clerks, cabbies, shopkeepers, etc., and again on February 25th, when Petrograd experienced a general strike. The crowd violently clashed with the police, but made appeals to the soldiers stationed in the city. 
there was an interesting divide within the public opinion where the police were seen as the czars and would fight to the end, but the soldiers were seen as the peoples and would support them. Not all of the soldiers supported the uprising, but officials were alarmed at the growing rate of soldiers who refused to disperse the crowds. The Russian officials decided to wait out the uprising, trusting that once, that once flour reached the city and bread was made again, the workers would disperse. The Tsar, who was at the front, and thus had no real idea of the situation on the ground, because no one bothered to tell him the truth about the matter, ordered his officers to use the military to crush the uprising instead. On February 26th, the soldiers and police opened fire on the marchers. A line had been crossed, forcing soldiers to choose between protecting a regime that didn't seem to know what it was doing, or join the protesters. Slowly, regiments led by young junior officers turned against the regime, culminating in the mutiny of the Petrograd garrison, which took all military power away from the authorities. The soldiers infused an organized militant strain into the uprising, turning it into a revolution. They targeted major infrastructure, spread the mutiny to other military barracks, and turned the violence on their many officers, the police, and the prisons. On February 27th, the Mensheviks, Bolsheviks, and others formed the Provisional Executive Committee of the Soviet's Workers' Deputies, which on the 28th became the Petrograd Soviet of Workers' and Soldiers' Deputies. They would meet in Catherine Hall and drew the soldiers and protesters to them. Meanwhile, the Duma, trapped inside the Tauride Palace, were forced into action after they heard of the creation of the Petrograd Soviet. They created their own governmental body the temporary committee of Duma members for the restoration of order in the capital and the establishment of relations with individuals and institutions. Talk about a mouthful. The goals of the temporary committee were to protect as many ex-ministers as they could from the crowd and entice the soldiers back to their barracks. The soldiers fearing they would be punished for mutinying sided with the Soviets. Even though the Soviets had the backing of the soldiers and the crowd, they did not take power in February. Instead, they created a shared government with the Duma, creating the Provisional Government, also known as the Dual Power Structure. In the end, this meant that the Soviets had the power without the responsibility, and the Provisional Government would have the responsibility without the power. On March 2nd, the Tsar abdicated for himself and his son. The reign of the Romanovs was over, replaced by a government put in place by an unexpected revolution that had no grand demand, only the desire for food and a competent government. But what did all of this mean for Central Asia? The short answer is, it's complicated. According to historian Marco Butino, in Russian territories like Central Asia, quote, the revolution arrived via telegraph. With that telegraph came citizenship. See, one of the many acts the provisional government in Petrograd passed was the abolition of all legal distinctions between citizens on basis of rank, religion, sex, or ethnicity granted every citizen over the age of 20 the right to vote, including women, and guaranteed freedom of the press. Overnight, this made the indigenous people of Central Asia citizens and dramatically changed the political dynamic between the indigenous peoples and Russian settlers, while stripping the settlers of the imperial protections they used to enjoy. This isn't to say that the provisional government was a great governing body who wanted equality for all, but the fall of the Tsar meant that Russia's hold on its colonies was loose enough for the indigenous people of Central Asia to exercise political power long denied to them. Obviously, 
For the Russian settlers, this was an existential crisis to their way of life and privileged positions in Central Asia. As we discussed in our episode about Russian colonialism, many of these settlers came to Central Asia looking for land and political and economic freedom they couldn't find in Russia proper. The settlers may have been glad the Tsar was gone, may have even supported the provisional government in principle, or may have been Bolsheviks. But it didn't matter when it came to how they felt about the indigenous peoples exercising political rights that had once been exclusive to the settlers. But what did the revolution and citizenship mean for the indigenous peoples? This is where it gets complicated. For the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus our discussion on the conservative ulama and merchant classes and two reformist groups, the Jadids and the Alash Orda. But acknowledge that this only covers a small fraction of the many different groups and reactions to the February Revolution. The reformists welcomed the revolution and its promise of equality and liberty because they believed it would bring forth many needed reforms. Neither the Jadids nor the Alash Orda were anti-Islam, but they both believed that something was wrong with their current society and it needed to be addressed. The Jadids focused on spreading their message through the arts and on developing a new teaching method, one that took children out of the ulama-dominated madrasas and gave them a quote-unquote modern education. The Alash Orda also believed in the new teaching methods, but were also more focused on land rights and its expulsing settlers from former Kazakh and Kyrgyz lands. If you want to learn more about the Jadids, you should listen to our interview with renowned scholar Dr. Adib Khalid. You should also stay tuned if you want to learn more about the Alash Orda, because we have an upcoming episode dedicated to the Kazakh modernizing movement. The ulama actually welcomed the February Revolution because they believed it would allow the indigenous peoples to practice Islam without Russian interference. But they were threatened by the Jadids because they feared that the Jadids would corrupt how people practice Islam, undermine their own position of power, and change Turkestan culture for the worse. The true source of the conflict wasn't one of secularism versus Islam, as we may think of when we think of modernizing a country, but really a conflict over how Islam should be practiced and what being quote-unquote modern meant. The Jadids were one of the first to react to the February Revolution. In March 1917, the Jadids mobilized the urban population in Turkestan. The center of the mobilization was in Tashkent, where in the first week of March, public gatherings attracted as many as 30,000 people. During one of these meetings, the Tashkent Muslim Council, also known as the Koshkan Shuro Islam Yashi, also known as Shuro for short, was created to function as a local government and party in Tashkent's old city. The Tashkent Shuro sent representatives to other cities, who were organizing their own mass gatherings to help local counterparts recruit new members and raise funds. The first official meeting of the Tashkent Shuro was organized by Munava Kori Abdurashidov and Ubedullah Hujev. Munava came from a family of ulama and, like many Jadid, studied at a madrasa in Bukhara. Renowned historian Adib Khalid considers Munavar to be the most important Jadid figure in Tashkent because of his organizational skills and because he was the driving force behind the formalization of the new method schools into a network with uniform standards and curricula, providing a model for all other Jadid schools. Ubaidullah was a lawyer by trade and attended a Russo native school as opposed to a madrasa. He would serve in Saratov as a translator and later as a lawyer for several years before returning to Tashkent and became involved with the Jadids. Ubaidullah's greatest weapon as a statement during this time period was his command of the Russian language, a rarity amongst many of the Jadids, and his familiar familiarity with Russian ways. 
The organizing efforts of, of the Shiro culminated in the first Congress of Muslims of Turkestan, which met in Tashkent on April 16th. This Congress attracted members from the various indigenous factions of Turkestan and was organized around a 16-point agenda regarding the region's future. During the meeting, they voted for Turkestan to be territorially autonomous in a democratic, federative Russian republic. They also elected a 12-member delegation to attend the All-Russian Muslim Congress, organized by the Muslim fraction of the state Duma, that would meet in Moscow, as well as established a Turkestan National Central Council. The Congress revealed many fractures amongst the indigenous population, with the ulama and merchants succeeding from the Shiro in May 1917 and creating the Society of the Ulama, also known as the Ulamo Jamia. Municipal elections were held in June. The Ulama defeated the Jadids quite resoundingly. In Tashkent, the Ulamo party won 62 of 112 seats, while the Shiro won only 11. The struggle between the Ulama and the Jadids would grow worse as 1917 progressed, with the Ulama arguing that, quote, and this is from a book by Dr. Khalid, the affairs of religion and of this world should not be separated, i.e. everything from schools to questions of land and justice should be solved according to the Sharia. But of course, the ulama were the only ones who could properly interpret the Sharia. During the second Turkestan Muslim Congress, which met early in early September, the Shiro proposed that, the, that Turkestan would have its own Duma with authority in all matters except external affairs, defense, posts and telegraphs, and judiciary. All citizens of Russia were equal, and freedoms of assembly, religion, and conversion were to be guaranteed. They agreed that Muslims were to be governed by Sharia, but they also passed a resolution that called for the establishment of a Sharia administration, Nate Oblast, with administrators elected and educated in contemporary needs. Again, this wasn't a fight to quote-unquote secularize the region, but an argument over how to implement Islam in a quote modern world. Interestingly, not all of the ulama were against this reformist approach. Those who supported the Jadids would create the Society of Jurists, also known as the Futaho Jamia, as a counter to the ulama. However, already Islam was taking on an ethnic tint. While the indigenous peoples explored different forms of government and the role of Islam, they were also exploring what it meant to be quote-unquote Turkestani, for Jadids, such as Abdurah Fitrat, a giant amongst giants, who we will return to many times during this season, being Turkestani meant embracing Turkism, a celebration of all things Turkic, but not Ottoman Turkic or even Pan-Turkic, but a very unique form of Central Asian Turkic, centered around Turkestan and epitomized by Timur, also known as Tamerlane. The ethnicization of identity seems to have been sparked by the conflict with the ulama, as the ulama clung to Islam as a form of identity, the Jadids turned to Turkism and nationality as their identity. Of course, this left other peoples, such as the Tajiks, increasingly left out in the cold, and we will actually get back to that later in the series. We've spent a bit of time talking about the indigenous peoples of Turkestan, but what were the Russian settlers and remaining soldiers doing during this entire time? They organized on their own, creating committees of public safety and Soviets. They made it clear that the indigenous peoples were not welcome, despite allowing two indigenous peoples to sit on the public safety committees. The Tashkent Soviet of Soldiers and Workers Deputies placed Governor General Kuropatkin of 1916 Revolt fame under arrest and appointed nine members to the Turkestan Committee to govern the region. 
This committee consisted of five Russians and four Muslims, but none of the Muslims were from Turkestan. Initially, the settlers were not interested in what the indigenous people wanted or would do. But then the Jadids and others started organizing, and the settlers grew nervous. They demanded that the old and new cities of Tashkent should have separate dumas with separate budgets. Not only did the settlers fear being politically overpowered by the indigenous citizens, they were also facing starvation. The region was already struggling food-wise because of the 1916 revolt and a brutal winter. Things only grew worse as the white Cossacks under Ottoman Alexander Dutov cut the Orenburg-Tashkent Railway, ending vital grain imports. By September, the Soviets and other revolutionary organs regularly requisitioned food. Even though they claimed they were taking it from the bourgeoisie, settlers often targeted the indigenous peoples of old Tashkent, claiming they were quote-unquote hoarders. The worst conflicts over food were seen in Semerechi, which was still recovering from the violence of 1916. By fall 1917, Turkestan was in an ethnic conflict with the settlers owning all the guns. However, the settlers were fighting each other as much as they were fighting with the indigenous peoples. And on October 27th, several soldiers rebelled against the Turkestan committee and took power on November 1st. The new Tashkent Soviet consisted of purely Russians and claimed that they now ruled all of Turkestan. The ulama organized a congress in Tashkent in the second week of November, proclaiming that since, quote, the Muslims of Turkestan comprised of 98% of the population, it was, quote, impermissible to advocate the assumption of power in Turkestan by a handful of immigrant soldiers, workers, and peasants who are ignorant of the way of life of the Muslims of Turkestan. Again, this is from Dr. Khalid's book. Despite this, they tried to form a coalition government with the Tashkent Soviet, which the Russians rejected, claiming, quote, the inclusion of Muslims in the organ of supreme regional power is unacceptable at the present time in view of both the completely indefinite attitude of the native population towards the power of the Soviets of soldiers, workers, and peasants' deputies, and the fact that there are no proletarian class organizations among the native population, whose representation in the organ of supreme regional power the faction would welcome. The Shuro, which you'll remember is the indigenous political body, responded to the settlers' actions by organizing another Congress of Muslims on November 27th. This time, however, they met in Kokan, a vibrant commercial center that was safe from the Russian settlers. The conference included all major figures of indigenous politics, except for the ulama. The Congress passed the following resolution, quote, The fourth extraordinary all-Muslim regional congress, expressing the will of the peoples inhabiting Turkestan to self-determination on the principles proclaimed by the Great Russian Revolution, proclaims Turkestan territorially autonomous within a federated democratic Russian republic. It offers the right to establishment of the form of autonomy to the Turkestan Constituent Assembly, which should convene as soon as possible, and solemnly declares that the rights of national minorities inhabiting Turkestan will be protected by all means. They created an eight-man government of autonomous Turkestan, which was responsible to a 54-member council. 32 of the members were elected at the conference, with 18 reserved for non-Muslim parties, and four seats were reserved for the representatives of municipal Dumas. Muhammadan Tinishbeyev was elected Prime Minister and Minister of Internal Affairs. Mustafa Chukwe was named Minister of External Affairs. Ubedullah Hoje was in charge of creating the People's Militia, and Obajan Mamudov became Minister of Food Supply. The reaction to an autonomous Turkestan was euphoric. Fitchat wrote, Autonomous Turkestan, 
I do not believe there's a greater, more sacred, more beloved word among the true sons of the mighty Timor, the indigenous Turks of Turkestan. If there is a force that can warm the blood of the Turks of Turkestan and heighten their faith, then there's only this word, autonomous Turkestan. Yet despite this joy, the Khan government quickly learned that it was easier to talk about governing than actually governing, a region beset by ethnic conflict and famine, when they had no governmental experience, no army, and no consistent stream of income. Nor were their actions welcomed by the Tashkent Soviet, who viewed an autonomous Turkestan as an existential threat. Ordering to leave the Jadids in Tashkent for now, because their story will continue into 1918, and we're going to shift our focus to the Jadids in the Bukhara Emirate, because even though they had similar goals, they were facing very different problems, because if we remember, the Bukhara Emirate wasn't ruled by a Russian governor general, but by an actual Muslim emir. So after the February Revolution, the Jadids secretly met at Fezula Hojev's house to discuss next steps. Fezula was born to one of the wealthiest families in Bukhara and was sent to Moscow for his education instead of a madrasa, giving him an edge since he was comfortable with the Russian language, again, something that was or not very common with the Jadids at this time. The Jadids decided to send two members to Samarkand to send a telegram to the provisional government in Petrograd saying, quote, Great Russia, through its devoted sons, has irrevocably overthrown the old despotic regime and founded in its place a free democratic government. We humbly ask that the new Russian government in the near future instruct our government to change the manner of its governance to the basis of freedom and equality so that we may also take pride in the fact that we are under the protection of great free Russia. Knowing they could not defeat the Mir alone, they also reached out to the Shuro in Samarkand and to other pan-Russian Muslim organizations. The provisional government in Petrograd was receptive but torn over how to proceed. Some thought they should forcibly intervene and dictate terms to Amir Sayyid Mir Muhammad Alam Khan. Others feared that this would anger the ulama, who would incite a region-wide conflict, potentially inviting in- intervention from Afghanistan. Instead, they decided to send send A. Miller as a representative to Bukhara to pressure the emir to issue reforms himself. Together, the emir and Miller wrote a draft of a political manifesto which the emir proclaimed on April 7th. This new proclamation promised the end of unjust taxes, established a state exchequer and budget, created an, an elected council in Bukhara to oversee public health and sanitation, established Bukhara's first printing press, and removed several conservative ulama and replaced them with reformists. The next day, the Jadids organized a march to thank the emir while also exerting the rise of reformism, and were met by a counter-protest organized by the ulama. The ulama feared what these reforms would mean for the, the traditions they held dear, as well as their own positions of power, going so far as claiming that, quote, we do not want our Islamic lands to be liberated, and we do not want indifference to the religion of the prophet. The fact that the Jadid's thank you march included members of the city's Shia and Jewish communities confirmed the ulama's worst fears. The march turned bloody, with many Jadids being accosted. The emir knew better than to take on the conservative elements of Bukhara and use their outrage to undo all the reforms he promised. This had the added benefit of distancing himself from Russian control as well. He arrested 30 Jadids, including Sadruddin Ani, the famous Tajik poet. It is said that Ani was lashed 75 times while in prison. Many Jadids ran to Kagan, 
the Russian settlement outside of Bukhara. They asked the emir for amnesty for themselves and to stop persecuting their comrades. The emir agreed to meet with them on April 14th, but he left halfway through the meeting, leaving the, J the Jadids the mercy of the angry crowd the Ulama gathered outside the palace. Cossacks and Russian troops from Kadian had to intercede to rescue the Jadids. They relocated to Kadian and created their own shiro, but knew that they were powerless against the emir out without outside help. For his part, the emir doubled down on placating the conservatives and issued a fatwa against all the Jadids, making Bukhara the center of anti-Jadid sentiment. So we're doing a shift focus again, because the Jadids have many new crises to, that they'll have to face, but it's going to be in 1918, and we want to stay in 1917 for this episode. So we're going to leave the Jadids, and we're going to focus on the Alash Orda, the Khazit modernizing movement. And this is going to be a brief summary, because we're going to have another episode that dives deeper into their formation and their goals. But basically, the Alash Orda, like the Jadids, wanted to reform their culture and society, but their main concern was the redistribution of land and establishing firm land rights for Kazakh and Kyrgyz peoples. And this makes sense if we remember the episodes we talked about um, Russian colonialism and even the 1916 revolt for the Kazakhs. It was really a war for you know being able to exist, and that was tied to land rights. The Alash Order were involved in many of the Muslim congresses put together by their Jadid counterparts, um, but as separate entities uh, who were facing different dilemmas and needs. And in uh, April 1917, they would form their own all-Kazakh congress in Orenburg, where they passed a resolution calling for the return of steppe land, the Kazakh and Kyrgyz peoples, control over local schools, and the expulsion of all new settlers in Kazakh Kyrgyz territories. It should be noted that they were still willing to exist in a federated Russia, like um, we saw with the, the Shiro in Kashyan and Samarkand. They wanted to be treated as citizens with their rights respected. It wasn't until three months later when the idea of territorial autonomy was first discussed. Initially, the Alash Orda attempted to work with the provisional government, but as that government lost power following the October, well, even before the October Revolution, but really following it, they, like their counterparts in Kashyan, realized their future lay beyond Russia. It is interesting to think about the differences between the Kazakhs and Kyrgyz people and then the Uzbek and, and Tajik and other peoples in the urban centers, because the Kazakhs, they were more likely to send their children to Russian schools as opposed to the madrasas. They had far more constant interactions with Russian settlers as the Russians colonized the steppe. And the fact that they're just geographically closer to Siberia than the other peoples of Central Asia, they may have been the first indigenous group to feel the full impact of developments in Russia proper, and were in some ways more prepared to deal with the influx of white and red soldiers that would enter the region in 1918 and 1919. Um, because we'll see that they make different decisions in 1918 than the uh, Jadids are able to make. Another thing to keep in mind is that the steppe was hit hard by the famine of 1917, and while the Alash Orda are, are forming congresses and committees, many of the nomads of the steppes were still fighting the battle of 1916 with Russian settlers. We shouldn't think that just because the Russian Revolution overthrew the Tsarist system, that the wounds of Russian colonialism and the causes and traumas of the 1916 revolt went away. The same sort of ethnic violence and food requisitioning we discussed earlier, when we were talking about Kashkent, was also occurring in the staff. On December 13th, 1917, under the leadership of Ali Khan Bukihanov, a former scientist before turning into a statesman, and Ahmet Boytosinov, 
a linguist who formed the Tausig alphabet and contributed to the development of Tausig grammar, created the Alesh autonomy, a state that included the lands that made modern-day Kazakhstan. The state was ruled by the Provisional People's Council of Alash Orda, which contained 25 members, 10 positions reserved for non-Kazakhs. Alikhan Lukihanov was elected its president. So, in short, 1917 was an explosive but partially hopeful moment for, uh, for Central Asia. In Turkestan, the Jadids and Alash Orda were able to create, to create autonomous states, but the Jadids in Tashkent were threatened by the Ulama, Russian settlers, and just the difficulty of trying to rule a region with deep colonial trauma and scars, a raging famine, and ethnic violence when you don't have an army and you don't have money. While the Alash Ordo were threatened by similar things, but also the looming white and red armies who are taking their war into Siberia, again, massive famine, and continued combat with Russian settlers. And then we have the Jadids in Bukhara, who, you know, are being chased out by the emir, and they have a fatwa hanging over their heads. So while the indigenous peoples were able to create a stunning amount, there's a lot of congresses, there's a lot of, you know, councils and autonomous states popping up all over Central Asia. They didn't have the political, military, or economic power to preserve what they created. And that seemed to be a big issue in 1918 and 1919. The October Revolution in which the Bolsheviks were able to overthrow the Kerensky-led provisional government, I think it had a muted impact on Central Asia at first. Uh, Central Asia is buffered, like I was saying, by like Siberia, but then there's also just this added aspect of, you know, the, once the Tsar system fell, Russia lost control of this part of the world. But that wouldn't last for long. Um, the civil wars didn't come down into Siberia and then the steppes. The Alash Order would be placed in a position of picking sides and dealing with the carnage that followed, while the Jadids would have to deal first with the Russian settlers and the Ulama, and then manage relations with the Red Observers who made their way to Kashin. If 1917 was a year of hope, 1918 would be a year of dashed hopes and recalibration of their goals and who their allies were. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that my attempts at pronouncing Turkic names and words were not completely terrible. You can listen to our full catalog on our website, www.samswarroom.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Please subscribe and leave a review. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare and Instagram. And please join our Patreon or, or you know, tell your friends about our Patreon I have a lot of big plans for this podcast in 2021 and beyond, and I can't do it without your support. Until next time, practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.